So now Brian's going to come and read our passage of Scripture this morning. Today's Scripture reading comes from two passages found in the book of Ezra. The first is chapter 6, verses 13 to 22, which says, Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and their associates, did with all the diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the And the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering of Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses." On the fourteenth day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples and of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned their heart heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Ezra chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and the rules in Israel. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Brian. Good morning, friends. Thank you for joining us for our service online this morning. This is certainly a Palm Sunday celebration like none of us have experienced before, but I'm really grateful that you're joining us online this morning. You may also be wondering what in the world the passage that Brian just read has to do with Palm Sunday, and we'll talk about that uh, in just a few minutes. But first, I'd like to take a few minutes to pray with you and for you. Uh, We pray for those of you in our church frequently throughout the week when we gather here. Those of us on our staff, the few of us here, gather for prayer. Um, But I'd like to pray with you and for you now. I'm aware that many of you are hurting, some very deeply. A number of you are parents uh, holding down a job working from home while you're also trying to care for and teach your children. Uh, Some of you I know have lost your jobs. Others have had significant uh, loss of income. 
Others in our church I know are business owners who have had to make incredibly difficult decisions about possibly letting valued employees go in order to keep the, the business viable. And we're praying for those of you who work in healthcare, those of you who are first responders, those of you who are still working to serve the public so we can have food. And I'd like to pray with you and for you now. So would you join me, please? Father, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on this Palm Sunday. And we pray for one another. I pray for your people, Lord, that you would bring them encouragement, that you would renew their hope and their strength. I pray that they would sense your love, your care, your goodness this morning. Father, we do pray for our health care workers, that you would be a shield of divine protection around them, that you would keep them from getting the coronavirus, that you would protect those who are serving us uh, in grocery stores and other places so that we can have food. Watch over our first responders and those in public safety. Father, we ask that you would guide those who are working on a vaccine and give supernatural discernment, wisdom, and guidance so a vaccine could be developed sooner than was thought possible. But above all, Lord, we pray that in this season you would draw us close to yourself, that he would, we'd have a greater understanding of who you are, and as a result, we would know you better and we would love you more. And we ask this in your great name. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, our theme for this year has been one story. We are taking a look at the entirety of Scripture, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, all 66 books of the Bible, and we're seeing how they fit together to reveal God's one great story, His plan of redemption for his people. Many people think the Old Testament is irrelevant and of real no, no real significance to Christians today. Uh, but as David Holcomb, our minister of discipleship, sometimes says, to discard the Old Testament would be like coming into a movie when it's three quarters over and only seeing the final quarter of the movie. Having the, an, an understanding of the Old Testament helps us see the entirety, the big picture of God's one-story plan. And today we come to an interesting Old Testament book, the book of Ezra. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one Hebrew book. Together they cover a period of about 100 years. Now, the events of both Ezra and Nehemiah take place near the end of the time period that we would call the Old Testament period. The books of the Old Testament are not all in chronological order. So as you're reading through the Bible, some of the books that come after Ezra, like the prophet Jeremiah, for example, actually occurred before the time of the events in Ezra. Now, a little bit of background on the book of Ezra. Because of the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel, God had allowed them to be carried off into exile. They'd been carried off to Babylon in uh, 586 B.C., and then in 539 B.C., Babylon itself was conquered by Cyrus, the king of Persia. And I'd like to just step back and take a look at the book of Ezra and, and give a, a broad overview very, very briefly 
And then I'd like to come back and ask the question, what, what does it mean for us? What does the book of Ezra have to teach us today in 2020, especially in the midst of the circumstances in which we find ourselves today? Quick overview of Ezra. The book opens with King Cyrus, the Persian king, decreeing the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. We read in the very first verses of Ezra, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Here's a remarkable thing. A Persian king, Cyrus, not a Jew, He's conquered Babylon, and he's saying, now all of you Jews who were exiled here, you can go back to Jerusalem, and I'm going to support you in this, and I decree you go back and build your temple to the God of heaven. So, the restored exiles go back, and they rebuild. We read in Ezra chapter 3, they set the altar in its place. The altar was the place they offered offerings to God. We read in verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, they began to praise God and celebrate. So they've returned to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple. Now think about this for a moment. This, this didn't happen in a matter of months or even a few years. The building of a temple of that time, if you think about it, stones had to be found, located, cut, uh, brought to the, the place of construction, the building of a temple might take decades. Uh, this did not happen overnight. While this was happening, adversaries of the Jews opposed the rebuilding of the temple. We read in Ezra chapter 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So apparently the inhabitants of the land didn't like the fact that the Jews had come back and they were rebuilding the temple and so they opposed them. God is working for the Jews, but there is opposition. Well, ultimately, the temple is completed. They finish the rebuilding of the temple. It takes years. And then worship is restored. And this is highly significant. The restoration of worship begins with the restoration of the celebration of the Passover. We read in Ezekiel chapter 6, on the 14th day of the first month, the return to exiles kept the Passover. The Passover was one of the most significant of all Jewish festivals. In their earlier history, when there had been a revival of faith and a recommitment to their Lord and their God, this is, had often involved a recovery of the Passover celebration. Now, the Passover goes back to the time when God delivered the Jews from their bondage to slavery in Egypt. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, God had called Moses to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. 
Moses had pronounced plagues on Egypt as a judgment upon Pharaoh and the land of Egypt. And then ultimately, the final plague was this. God said, the firstborn in every household will die. But not so for the Jews. God said to the Jews, you take a lamb, a spotless lamb, kill it, prepare it to eat, and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts of your home and on that beam across the top of your door. And then that night, when the angel of death goes throughout the land of Egypt to slay the firstborn in every home, he will pass over you. So the Passover celebrated this sparing of life uh, amongst the Jews. It was immediately prior to their exodus from Egypt, where God would part the Red Sea and do wonderful miracles for them. So the Passover celebrated their deliverance from slavery, their protection from death and destruction. And there had been earlier periods in their history when the Israelites had returned to God. The celebration of the Passover was a key in the revival of their faith. So the temple's completed, worship's restored. Then this scribe named Ezra is sent to teach the law of God. We read of Ezra that he had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so Ezra is sent according to the wisdom of God to set things in order, to appoint magistrates and judges. And uh, so things are being set in order, but yet opposition does not stop. This time, disobedience threatens the people from within. We read in Ezra chapter 9, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. So now it's sin within the camp from among the Israelites. Now this is what's threatening their spirituality, their revived worship. And so Ezra again has to step up. He prays for the people. He calls people to repentance and to obedience to God. And that's a broad look at what we have in the book of Ezra. Now, what in the world does that have to do with us? What do we learn from the book of Ezra? What is it teaching us in 2020? Well, the first thing that I think is striking about the book of Ezra, and we should grasp this, I think, first and foremost, is the fact of God's rule, his sovereign rule over all of his creation. The book of Ezra teaches us that God rules over all, and he can work through anyone to fulfill his word. Again, in that first verse of Ezra, we read in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. God stirred the spirit of Cyrus. Now, think about the Jews for a moment. They're in exile in Babylon. They've been conquered there. Surely they wondered, where is God in all this? What about the promises that were made to Abraham, our ancestor, that through us the Jews would come a Messiah, great blessing for all the world? That's not happening. We don't see it. Furthermore, we've been in exile here in Babylon for 70 years. And one of our greatest prophets, Jeremiah, prophesied that after 70 years in Babylon, we'd be returned to our homeland. 
Jeremiah 29, 10 reads, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So God works in this non-Jewish king, Cyrus, king of Persia, and God is stirring his spirit to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah from years prior. And he's sending them back. The point is simply this. God can work through anyone to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, to fulfill his word, his promises. The book of Proverbs says, the king's heart is a stream or a river of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. God rules over history, even when it may not appear to us that he does. The second thing the book of Ezra teaches us is that when God's people do pursue his purposes, pursue his purposes, opposition will come. Opposition comes from without, from without the people of God. That certainly happened here in the book of Ezra, didn't it? The people of the land, we read in chapter 4, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and they bribed counselors against them. So just because the Israelites had gone back to rebuild the temple did not mean it wasn't, they weren't going to be opposed. In fact, their doing God's will actually resulted in greater opposition. And friends, it is that way for you and me, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who seek to do God's will and to put our time and energy and resources into the building of God's kingdom, we have an adversary. Apostle Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 5. He said, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him firm in your faith. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you have an adversary, the devil. And our call is to steadfastly resist him as he opposes us in doing God's will. Now, in the book of Ezra, opposition came not only from without, but from within, when there was compromise, when there was uh, evil in the camp among the Israelites. And we read again in Ezra chapter 9 that um, even the Levites, the priests, these would be the pastors, the leaders, they had not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. They'd accommodated the culture. They'd become just like the people around them in their morality and their behavior. So Ezra called them to repent. Likewise, for Christians, we will often find that our most difficult battles are within our closest relationships. That's why the Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, talks about resolving anger, dealing with bitterness, resentment in our homes, in our close circles of relationship. He, he writes, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. When we hold within ourselves anger and it becomes resentment and bitterness toward another person, it may be our spouse, maybe somebody in our own household, our own family, our church family, we give opportunity to the devil when we don't deal with those things. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, deal with your anger tonight. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So the book of Ezra teaches us first that God rules over all 
He's going to bring his purposes and his promises to pass. And secondly, when we get involved in those purposes, pursuing the work of his kingdom, we must be aware that opposition will come. But thirdly, it teaches us that obedience to God's word and consecration, devotion to his will, lead to joy and renewed strength. And again, we see the passage that Brian read a bit earlier about the recovery of the Passover. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles celebrated the Passover. Now, again, uh, the Passover was that which reminded them of their deliverance uh, from Pharaoh's bondage in Exodus, but it was also a critical part of their revived and renewed worship. So what does that have to do with us? What does it have to do with us today? The Passover, while it was a mark of revived or renewed devotion, was far more significant than that. Because the Passover was as critical and and important uh, as it was, was only a shadow. The Passover ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Just as centuries before the blood of a lamb was applied to the doorposts of a home, so the angel of death would spare that home from judgment, passing over it, sparing them from death, so the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross would provide atonement for our sins so that they are essentially passed over, atoned for, forgiven, the slate wiped clean. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover, is sacrifice for us. In Jesus Christ, the shadow of the Passover Uh, finds its ultimate fulfillment. Jesus is the substance. Now, I'd like to fast forward from the book of Ezra about 2,500 years and look for a moment at the very last week of Jesus' life. That's the week we reflect on this week and the week that we sometimes call Holy Week as we anticipate uh, this Friday Good Friday, we remember his crucifixion, and Sunday as we will celebrate his resurrection. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, we read that Jesus has gathered his own disciples to celebrate the Passover. Matthew 26 and verse 17, we read these words. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, The disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city and a certain man uh, to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. So now last week of Jesus life, he's going to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, but it is going to be to fulfill the Passover. It's going to be the final celebration of Passover uh, for his disciples because he is going to transform the Passover. We read in verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it 
and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, what is Jesus doing here? When he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus is telling us that on the cross, he will take our place. He will be the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. He will be our Passover sacrificed for us. So that now, when you and I celebrate the Passover, we are reflecting not upon a lamb whose blood was applied to the doorposts of our homes, but the Lamb of God, Jesus, who was nailed to a cross and there shed his blood for us. Through our faith in him, by faith receiving his sacrifice on our behalf, we become God's adopted children, forgiven for our sins, credited with the very righteousness of Jesus so that we can call God Abba, Father, our Father who art in heaven. Now, this week, Holy Week, I'd like to invite you to join uh, us in celebrating the Lord's Supper and reflecting deeply on the meaning of it. Uh, and we have two opportunities to do that. The first will be this Thursday night, our Monday Thursday service. And if, if that's a strange word to you, uh, the word Monday comes from the, the Latin word mandate, and it has to do with Jesus' great mandate to love one another. So our Monday Thursday service will be a live online worship service just like this one, this Thursday night, 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. And then, uh, and we will celebrate the Lord's Supper then. Then we're going to do something we've never done before. We're also going to celebrate the Lord's Supper next Sunday, Easter morning. So, be thinking about that. Make sure that you've got some, some bread in your house and maybe some juice of some type. And if you don't, uh, Pastor Andrew's going to tell us uh, a way that you could get some uh, in just a few minutes. But I want to say this before... Um, closing this service this morning. Um, what is happening right now in our time, in our world, is a remarkable thing. Um, I've never seen anything like it in my life, and it's affecting not just those of us here in the United States, but all over the world. I've been reading this week um, emails and newsletters from missionaries uh, from Pakistan to to. Uh, Africa and seeing what's happening with people in India and um, situation is very dire for for many people but what I see happening is God's people coming together to pray like never before the only thing like this I can remember in my years of ministry uh, was when 9-11 occurred and churches everywhere came together in prayer but that was basically just here, mostly just here in the United States, and it was incredibly short-lived. I mean, the prayer and the zeal for prayer went on for maybe a couple weeks, and then it just kind of went back to normal. What's happening now 
is different. For one, it's happening all over the world. Secondly, um, it, it's going to be extended over some period of time. Uh, last night, my wife and I participated in um, a live uh, online prayer meeting uh, by the Gospel Coalition from 7 to 8 o'clock. It was a culmination of a day of fasting and prayer that they had called for. At the very same time, 24-7 uh, Prayer Winston-Salem was having a Facebook Live time of prayer, and they're signing up people to pray 24 hours a day throughout this week. This Friday, Good Friday, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, of which we are part, has called for a day of prayer and fasting, but it's not just the EPC. This also includes a number of other church affiliations and denominations like the Anglican Church in North America, the Presbyterian Church in America. So there are potentially hundreds of thousands, perhaps a million or more people being called to fasting and prayer this Friday on Good Friday. This coming Thursday night, one of the largest missions organizations in the world, CRU, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, is having a live online uh, prayer service at 9 p.m. to kick off 40 days of 24-7 prayer. We are going to be seeing and experiencing something that perhaps none of us have ever experienced before. And I want to ask you to join me in this. We've asked those of you in our church uh, to, to spend at a minimum five minutes every day praying with at least one other person. Could be somebody in your home, somebody you call on the phone, a small group, but pray with somebody else at least five minutes a day for a greater outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a deeper work of God in our lives, our church, our community, and our nation. Yes, we're praying for the end of the virus. Yes, we're praying for protection over people. Yes, we're praying for the development of a vaccine. But let's not just seek to persevere and get through this time. Let's persevere and get through this time experiencing a greater work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, our church, our community, and our nation. That's the opportunity we have. And so I urge you to join me in daily prayer with at least one other person and I'm going to ask you to join me again in prayer right now. Father, again we come in the name of Jesus. And as we enter this week that we call Holy Week, and we reflect upon what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us, what he suffered, what he endured, when the weight of the sin of the world was poured out upon him as if he were guilty of all, that is something we cannot comprehend, but we accept by faith that in your mercy and goodness, Lord, you have done that for us. Lord, as we reflect upon that, would you do the needed work in each of our lives? Would you bring about a renewed devotion, a renewed consecration? Would you do a deep searching work in each one of us, Lord, to reveal sinful patterns and habits? where there's covetousness, where there's hatred, where there's resentment or anger. Work deeply in us, Lord, to fill us with the Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus Christ that surpasses mere human understanding. Work deeply in us. Prepare us to celebrate Christ, our Passover, 
who was sacrificed for us this week. Prepare us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Please, Lord, pour out your spirit on this nation and all the nations of the world, we pray. And we ask this in the great name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.